song that is, isn't it? Tremendous message. He touched me. Well, I trust that the Lord's touched you in your life. I trust that He's made an impact and a difference. And again, there's one thing being saved, and of course, that's being touched. No doubt about it. But boy, we want to be touched after we've been saved. Amen? We want God to work in our lives long after we've known Him and long after we've received Him as our Savior and Lord. Well, you'll notice we have some decorations still up from this past weekend. We decided to leave them up. We have our Teen Spectacular coming up this week, and they're going to utilize the same type of uh, decorate, decor, and we thought we'd just leave things up. And I thought we'd give you a little bit of a chance to see the flavor of our church here this last week. And again, we had a tremendous time. I know we had over 140 kids in here at a time, and that was exciting. We were really, really glad to see that we saw youngsters saved. We'll get a final report here in another few days, I'm sure. But the Lord was good to us, and boy, it just turned out really well. Had so many of you praying for us, so many of you uh, involved in the process, and we couldn't have done it without you. We thank you so much for just your willingness to be involved and your patience in dealing with situations and circumstances here, of course, with the kids. Everybody did such a fabulous job. And again, our Teen Spectacular coming up this week. If you know any teenagers, get them here at 7 o'clock. They're going to hear some preaching. Uh, at least they'll have good preaching at least three of the four nights. I'm on one night, so they'll just have to deal with that. Other than that, they're going to have some great preaching, and we're going to have a good time, okay? But anyway, we're glad, glad to have a part in the lives of young people and children alike. 
And I just want you to keep praying this week. It's important, imperative that you do so. All right. Well, turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. We're going to begin in verse 21. I'm going to try to take too awfully long today, but I do want to share and talk to you today about a very important subject. I want to ask the question today, is your faith real? Is your faith real? Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. We're going to read through verse 28 today. You know, you find that. I, I feel compelled, moved, to share just a few things with you. My singles know what's coming. What do prisoners use to call each other? Cell phones. Yes. Some of you knew. Yes. Why was the computer in pain? It had a slipped disk. Why was the computer so thin? Because it hadn't had many bites. Well, I didn't say they were going to be good. Um, Why did the cat sit on the computer? To keep an eye on the mouse. A guy guy goes into a store and he says, Listen, I bought this computer yesterday and, and I found a twig in the disk drive. Can you imagine finding a twig in the disk drive? The sales assistant said, well, I'm sorry, sir. You'll have to speak to the branch manager. (laughs) We're almost done. (laughs) You must endure for a season. This too must come to pass. But anyway, (laughs) what did one keyboard say to the other keyboard? Sorry, you're not my type. (laughs) And finally, why... (laughs) Why did the boy computer mouse like the girl computer mouse? They just seemed to click. Okay, well, there you go. All right. I thought they were better than that too, guys. Singles liked some of them. You know, I don't know. All right. Matthew 15, verse 21, all right? Here we go. Then Jesus went thence and departed unto the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying... Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not me to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. In the passage, we note a number of things. First of all, we note the plea. We see the plea. She cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord. And then she asked that her daughter would be healed of this grievously vexed demon that had, uh, devil that had taken control and, and she was very concerned and she was very distraught and she pleaded and begged the Lord. 
We see not only the plea, but we see the problem, though. The problem wasn't that the Lord, uh, that the girl had this problem. That wasn't really the real issue. Uh, There's some ringing or something going on. I don't, I think it's this big guy here, right here, maybe. I'm getting it off of him. He's hitting that, uh, don't worry about it. It's just that guy here. It's Jonah's whale. But anyway, we see the plea, but the real problem Again, wasn't that the daughter was grievously vexed with the devil. That, that can be resolved. That can be handled. The real problem was that he answered her not a word. I mean, she, she pleaded with the Lord. She cried out to the Lord, and he answered her not a word. The disciples even come to the Lord, and they're like, Hey, Lord, come on, do something to help this lady. She's driving us nuts. Well, he then expresses the position. He says, I'm not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This isn't an Israelite. This, is, this isn't one of our own. This isn't the, uh, the, the, my people. I'm sent to my people. I'm sent to Israel. I know she's crying out. I know her daughter has a problem, but I will not hear it. I have a mission. I have a job to do. I have a purpose for living and a reason for what I'm trying to accomplish here. So his position was she's not of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So... But notice the persistence. She came again, and she worshipped him, and she said again, Lord, help me. This girl, this woman wouldn't take no for an answer. She was persistent. She stuck with it. She stayed at it. I think we are reminiscent of prayer. God tells us to be the same way, doesn't he? Keep coming to the Lord. Keep going to Christ. Don't quit praying. Just stay at it. You have not because ye ask not. Keep at it. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. So the plea, the problem, the position, and then we see her persistence. Finally, note the protest. The Lord Jesus answers and said, Is it it is not me to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs? Wow, wasn't that a nice reply? Implying that she was a dog in a sense, or not worthy of the best that he had to offer. Isn't that amazing, really? Someone says that was so rude, that was so negative, so crude. Yeah, it appeared that way, without a doubt, no doubt about that. But you got to understand, Christ came with a purpose. He was there for the house of Israel. He was preaching and teaching to them. He was hoping that they would turn to him and he could have then established his kingdom there on earth, on the throne of David. But we're going to find, as you read through the New Testament, that they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and he opened salvation up to the Gentile. At this point, however, he was focused primarily, solely on Israel. So we see his protest. But then note the precedent. She steps up to the plate. She says, wait a second. I'm going to share with you something that should make a difference and impact you. Lord, truth, Lord, you're right. You're right. Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Nature itself shows us that although you may not, you may not cast the, the children's bread to the, to the dogs, but the fact is, is that Even the dogs eat uh, the the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Come on now. Come on now. Think it through. And then we see the persuaded. Jesus is persuaded. Can you imagine? Why why is it that we ought to continue to pray? I don't know. Someone says, you can't change God's mind. I don't know. She seemed to have some impact in that. I don't know about you, but I'm going to just keep praying. We'll trust the Lord with the end result. But the fact is, this woman right here, she didn't give up. She was persistent. She stayed at it. And all of a sudden, the Lord's persuaded. Then answered he and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. (laughs) And then the payoff comes. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And the Bible says that her daughter was made whole from that very hour. The Lord wasn't even listening to her. The Lord had nothing to do with her. 
I mean, the disciples even said, hey, Lord, can't you help her? Do something. She's driving us nuts. Nope. But boy, she came back and she was persistent and ultimately it paid off because she persuaded the Lord even. Her great faith. Notice again what he says about her. He says, O woman, great is thy faith. I got to believe she had a real genuine faith. I mean, she had to have some real faith. You know, we could, we could, see, could you know, uh, see so many things in this passage. I mean, we could view so many different angles and we could understand it from so many different positions. But I want to focus on simply one. And here it is. Real faith moves mountains. And even more important, real faith moves God. Our heroine, she is desperate here. She is totally desperate. She understands that there is one and only one man in the entire world that can make a difference in the life of her daughter. Only one that can heal her child. Her faith is strong, it's steadfast, it's settled. Her faith is real, and real faith is very powerful. The Lord and everyone around recognized her faith by the way that she responded to her crisis. She came right to Him. The way she confronted the opposition. Didn't matter that He didn't want anything to do with her. She stayed at it. And the way she even controlled her emotions and her responses. I mean, they recognized there was something unique about this woman. She had a faith that endured. Real faith is the only kind of faith that is going to get us through the battles. It's the only kind of faith that's really going to get us through the hard times or the trials that we face. It's the only kind of faith that's going to enable us to be built rather than to be broken. And I want to share four aspects of real faith this morning. And as we continue, may each of us ask ourselves that simple question. Is our faith real? Is it real? Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We need you tonight, uh, this morning, and we just pray, Lord, that you just work in our hearts. We thank you, Father, as the song said, that if we've been touched by your, your hand, if we've been saved by the blood. But, Lord, even then, we still need you to continue to wrap your arms about us and meet our every need. Father, help us to have faith that's real. Not just faith, uh, Father, real enough to save us, but real enough to help us live. Father, we need you today. And, Father, we're asking you, Lord, just to be with us. Father, if we ever hope to move mountains, if we ever hope to move you, then, Father, we need real faith. If we ever hope to make an impact in the lives of others around us, we must exhibit real faith and possess real faith. Help us, Lord, today. And, Lord, may you fill me with your spirit and help me to be able to share what you've given me. And, Lord, may, Father, every listening ear be anointed with oil as well, uh, with, with the Holy Spirit, so that we, Father, can hear from you. Lord, we'll thank you and praise you. In Christ's name, amen. Real faith. It in- Real faith includes a couple of things. It, um, it possesses, excuse me, it rejoices, excuse me, I'm gonna, let me say that again. Real faith includes rejoicing that convicts. A real faith includes rejoicing that convicts. If you have real faith, you're going to be exhibiting rejoicing that convicts. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, there are certain people that face opposition at every turn. It doesn't matter where you're at in life. It doesn't matter what you're doing in life. It just seems that opposition is there. While others seem to kind of escape the clutches of opposition or, or trial or tribulation. It seems like life goes pretty smooth. But here's the reality. 
No one lives a problem-free life. No one. Okay, some may seem to have more problems than others, but no one lives a problem-free life. Real faith breeds hope. A genuine, real faith will breed hope in your life. If not hope in this life even, for sure the next. There's always hope. Real faith breeds hope. And hope gives us a reason to rejoice. I want to consider three aspects of rejoicing. First of all, rejoicing is commanded in the Scriptures. In Philippians 4.4, what's the word say? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. We're commanded to rejoice. That's just a reality. It's commanded. But you know what? Rejoicing, according to the passage, isn't based on our circumstances. It's, It's based on Him, the Lord. Notice it says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. The key is the Lord. When we focus our attention on Him, then there's always something to rejoice about. It may not be our circumstance that's so happy and so wonderful. That could be a real mess. But if we can elevate the Lord, if we can just focus on Him, if we can just get our eyes on Christ, then we'll have a reason to rejoice. Because He's so wonderful and so good, as the preacher so adequately mentioned earlier. Rejoicing is commanded. Rejoicing is contagious. It's contagious. When we're surrounded by others who are rejoicing, it's hard not to rejoice. That's why we need to be in God's house. That's why we need in the place of worship. I mean, somebody thinks, well, I don't really need church that much. It's not that big a deal. I don't need organized religion. I don't know about you, but I knock on doors every week. And I I, I come back and I'm amazed how many people will tell me something like, uh, well, you know, I just don't believe in organized religion. Well, one place that we find the kind of attitude and outlook that we need in the Christian life is at the house of God. It's important that we get around others that are rejoicing, others that, that, that see Christ high and lifted up, others that say, man, it's good to be a Christian. Boy, it's wonderful to know Christ. It's a wonderful thing to be around others that are rejoicing because it is contagious. But then on the other hand, let me say this. If you are uh, down in the mouth, if you're always discouraged and disappointed and you're always uh, critical and cynical, and, and let me tell you this, you need to be careful how many people you try to touch. You'd be better off to sit and shut your mouth and say nothing. Because let me tell you something, the negative critical spirit is also contagious. Well, I don't like this building we're in. I thought we were supposed to be in the carousel a long time ago. Keep your mouth shut. I didn't come here to be discouraged. I came here to get encouraged, to rejoice in the Lord. You mean to tell me that seeing all those children saved during VBS isn't a reason to rejoice? You're telling me that knocking on doors and seeing people saved almost every single week in our ministry isn't something to rejoice about? You're telling me that the baptism we had just a few weeks ago, six or seven being baptized, isn't something to be excited about and rejoice about? Are you telling me that the Word of God that's proclaimed and preached from this pulpit isn't something to be rejoicing about? Are you telling me that the friends and the family and the others that you know here are not reasons to rejoice and to thank God for? Are you telling me that the health that you possess... And that you have in your life isn't worth rejoicing over? Are you telling me that? Because I'm telling you, they have every reason in this world to rejoice. And we come sometimes with a critical, cynical spirit. And may I say that does nothing, nothing to help the people of God. Nothing. God help us to understand that we need to rejoice in the things of God. It's so important. It's commanded of you. You are rebellious and disobedient if you fail to rejoice in the things of Christ. 
So am I. It's a convicting idea, the thought that I must rejoice. Because there are times in my life, probably just like yours, where I don't feel like rejoicing. But I'm commanded to do so. And so are you. Rejoicing is commanded. It's contagious. But finally, it's convicting. You say, what in the world's convicting about rejoicing? Well, the Bible says in Psalm 22, 3, But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Well, did you just hear what... But thou art holy. Who? Me? No. You? Nah. Him. Thou art holy, Lord. O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. See, it's convicting. Praising is convicting. Rejoicing is convicting because Christ inhabits the praise of His people. He inhabits the praise. When we're rejoicing, Christ is in the midst. Where He is, there is always conviction. You can't stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and not be convicted. I can't. You can't get into God's presence and not be convicted of sin and and of, of needs in our life and of change that must come. Why is it that people don't want to frequent the house of God sometimes? Why is it that they don't want to read their Bible and pray? Why is it that they don't want to come close to other godly men and women? Because they're concerned about the conviction that they feel. They don't want to have to change. They don't want to feel like they're dirty. They don't want to have to repent of sin. Rejoicing is convicting. When God's people are seen rejoicing, especially in the midst of their sorrow, their hurt, their heartaches, others are often convinced of the reality of God because God inhabits the praise of His people. So first of all, is your faith real? Well, if it is, then there's a rejoicing that convicts. People see your rejoicing. It's something that draws them to God even or causes them to see their need for God. Number two, I'm doing an acrostic real, <laughs> so that was R, rejoicing. Number two would be entity. Now, I have to put a word in front of it. Unentity that controls. If our faith is real, then there is an entity that controls. An entity that controls. Take your Bible, look at John 14, would you please? We must move quickly. I want to get right through this. We've we got a lot to cover in a very short time, and I'm going to get done soon. John 14, verse 16. In John chapter 14, verse 16 through 18, the Bible says, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him. For he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you, the Lord Jesus said. So what he's saying is, I'm preparing to leave, but don't worry, I'm going to send another comforter. That comforter will live in you. You'll know him. Because he's going to be in you. And by the way, I'll be with you. So he's saying, the comforter represents me. I'll be in you in the person of the Holy Ghost. I'll literally be inside you. I will dwell in you. I will take up residency in you. Literally, if you're a child of God today, if you're saved, you have an entity, a person living inside you. His name is Jesus Christ in the person of the Holy Ghost. Now, the Bible tells us that, that that... heavenly inhabitor, Jesus Christ, the the Holy Spirit, God himself will 
ultimately affect our life if we yield to Him. We still have this flesh we can yield to. We still have sin and Satan that we can yield to. But if we'll yield to the one that lives in us, the Holy Spirit of God, if we'll allow the Spirit to control us, if we'll allow God to have His hand in our life and to direct us and lead us and to guide us, then the Bible tells us in Galatians 5.22 we will experience what is called the fruit of the Spirit. The Bible says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. He goes on to say in that same passage, he says, And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. He's saying, listen, if you have Him living in you, yield to Him. Allow Him to live in and through you. A real faith is a faith who gives control to the Spirit of God. A real faith is a faith that exhibits characteristics and qualities of a submitted, surrendered life to Jesus Christ and to that one living in you. There'll be love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. There you go. Those are the qualities. Those are the characteristics that will be evident in our life when we have real faith. Who or what controls your life, your lips, your longing today? That's a question that we need to ask every single moment of every day, really. Who's in control of this lump of clay? Who's in control of this mind that's been corrupted with the exception of that which is trans, that has changed as a result of Christ in me? I mean, I'm still capable of thinking worldly, horrible thoughts. And I'm to be renewed in that process. So what's he saying in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There's a transformation that takes place, but it doesn't take place because you just got saved. It takes place because now you have the one who saved you in you, and you can yield to him, surrender to him. You can submit to him, and as you do that, your mind is transformed. It's changed. Real faith, real faith has evidence of an entity that controls. The Holy Spirit of God controlling. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. You know, the reality is, if we're really honest today, the, the truth is most of us, including myself, try to do way too much in our own strength, our own ability. When in reality we have the Lord living in us, God himself literally in us. We need to be so careful. Real faith, real faith, it includes a rejoicing that convicts. It, it includes an entity that controls. Real faith includes appreciation that compels. Appreciation that compels. Um, see, the love that you and I feel toward the Lord is a direct result of His love already directed toward us. See, He says in 1 John four nineteen, we love Him... Because he first loved us. So I love him because he loved me. You love him because he loved you. And he loved you before you loved him. That's what the Bible teaches us. Someone says, well, I wasn't aware of that love. It doesn't matter, but he did. 
2,000 years ago even, he died on a cross because he loved you. So he loved you before you ever loved him. I mean, 6,000 years ago, he created this world and he knew who you were. Because he loves you. I mean, long before the world ever came into existence, God already knew you. And he loved you. And you love him because he first loved you. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, keep my commandments then. See, that love that we feel toward the Lord because of his love toward us should dictate our life and our practice. There ought to be a sense of debt and, and gratitude as a result of the finished work of Christ in our life. Don't you feel a sense of debt to him? And someone says, I don't think we should serve the Lord out of debt. Paul said he's a debtor to the Jew and to the Greek. That's man. Can you imagine what debt he feels to God? Amen, that's right. All I'm saying is, are you kidding me? If, if today we were out uh, uh, driving, and uh, we, say you were out driving, you were in a horrible car accident, and I came alongside of you, and you could not breathe, and I gave you mouth to mouth, and I somehow was somehow important, instrumental in your life being saved, you mean you'd have no sense of gratitude toward me? You wouldn't be like, oh, thank you. I just want to thank you for being there, willing to do that. It was such a difficult situation. I don't know if I could have done that, but thank you so much. I think I would do that if someone did that for me. I'd be grateful, thankful, a debt of appreciation, even a debt to them. If you ever need anything, you let me know. How much more has Christ done for us? There ought to be a sense of debt. I think of the maniac of Gadara. The Bible says, And they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. And when he went forth to land, he met out of the city a certain man, which had devils long time and wore no clothes, neither abode in any house but in the tombs. Of course, we know that the man was possessed by what was called a legion, meaning a number of devils. And he was bound by chains, the Bible tells us, even fetters. And he was driven into the wilderness on a number of occasions because of, his, of the possession that was going on in his life. Well, the Lord ultimately cast out those demons. He cast them into a herd of swine that ultimately run off into the, the lake and they drowned. It picks up in Luke 8, 34, where it says, When they that fed saw the, uh, what was done, they fled and went and told the, in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what was done and came to Jesus and found the man, out of whom the devils were departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. They'd never seen that before. And they were afraid. <laughs> they also, which saw it, told them by what means he, had, uh, uh, he that was possessed of the devils was healed. And when the multitude of the country of the Gadarenes round about besought him to depart from them, for they were taken with great fear, and he went into the ship and returned back again. So the Lord's leaving now. Now the man out of whom the devils were departed besought him that he might be with him. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus, you're the reason why I'm, I'm sitting here clothed and sitting here in my right mind. You're the reason why I don't have a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. You're the reason, Lord. Oh, let me travel with you. Let me serve you. Let me do whatever you need done. I'll do anything. Why? A debt of gratitude. Right. Amen. The Bible says that the Lord said to him, Return to thine own house and shew how great things God had done unto thee. Now just go back home and be a good witness of what's transpired and taken place. Tell everybody what I did for you. 
And he went his way and published throughout the whole city how great things Jesus had done unto him. Do you want to know something? When we read in the Word of God again later on, and they come back into that area, guess what there already is? Believers. You want to know why? Because we had a faithful man who was demon-possessed, who now was touched by the Master, and had such a sense of gratitude and debt that he did exactly what God wanted him to do out of gratitude. No one had to tell him to go to church. No one had to force him to read his Bible. No one had to tell him, you got to pray. He said, I want to do it. If that's what pleases him, I want to do it. I owe him everything. There were ten lepers, though. You'd think that everyone that was touched by the Master, everyone that received that kind of influence in their life would gladly be grateful and have a sense of debt. But that's not always the case, is it? Ten lepers in Luke chapter 17, verse 11 through 18, we read about these lepers who ultimately are touched by Jesus Christ. They lifted their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go, shew yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God. Wait, 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 wait. Did I read that right? And one of them. He ultimately goes on to say, And he fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. Remember that Jew thing going there? He said, Man, I'm not the, she's, not the house of, she's not of the house of Israel. I can't, I can't mess with her. Wait, now we see Jesus. He healed this man. He's a Samaritan. He's not a Jew. He's a byproduct of the Assyrian captivity. But yet Jesus shows mercy on him and heals him now. And Jesus answered and said, Where were there, were there not ten cleansed? Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Now Jesus wasn't being negative. Oh, great, only one came back. Ah, get out of here. No, it wasn't like that. He's just going, wait a second. Did I not just cleanse ten lepers? Did I not just cleanse ten men who had no hope of ever recovering of this disease that they would forever have the rest of their life till the day they die? I cleansed them. I healed them. Where are the nine? Only one showed gratitude. Only one felt a sense of debt and responsibility to the Lord. I hope that's not the case in your life or in mine. So we find here that real faith, real faith includes rejoicing that convicts. It it includes an entity that controls. We yield control to the Holy Spirit. It includes appreciation that compels us. And finally, real faith includes a love that constrains. A love that constrains. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, the Apostle Paul, talking to the Corinthian church, says, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. Constrain, that word, in a general sense, it means to strain or to press, to urge, to drive, to exert force. Thomas Bilney, he was a professor of law at Cambridge during Tyndale's university days. Tyndale was a very important man during the turn of the, uh, during the uh, Reformation, but 
Bilney was a professor of law at that time while Tyndale was a university student. He's noted at the first, he's been considered or noted as the first English convert to the Reformation, this Bill, Bilney is. He contributed his new birth to the passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 that says, This is a faithful saying and worthy all of, of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. His own testimony of his conversion experience goes like this. Quote, This one sentence did so exhilarate being before wounded with the guilt of my sins and being almost in despair, that even immediately I seemed to feel a marvelous comfort and quietness insomuch that my bruised bones leaped for joy. So he was, so, he was unable to contain his joy, as you can imagine, being saved. And, and he, he shared his experiences with everyone and anyone that would even give him the time of day. He may have been the very person who led, led Tyndale to Christ even. They're not sure. But he continued preaching, and he was a tremendous aid in distributing, ultimately distributing Tyndale's New Testament, uh, New Testament to people. I mean, he was, in those days, the Bible was not being put off. You know, you couldn't get a Bible like you can today. Matter of fact, if you got caught with a Bible from Tyndale or any other Bible like that in your own language, you were... You were Killed. <laughs> it's real simple. You weren't allowed to have them. At that point, and, and we just must say it, historically speaking, the Catholic Church said there will be no other Bibles. Our Bible. You put a Bible in your language, we'll kill you for it. And they did. So Bilney, he continued to preach, and he continued to do those things. However, he was arrested in 1527 and convicted of heresy by Archbishop Tonstall. T-O-N-S-T-A-L. So he's incarcerated now in the Tower of London. He's under being tortured now. Tortured to recant. Tortured to turn back to the Catholic Church. Tortured to get rid of his Bible. Tortured to, to stop preaching this gospel. His, the problem was he recanted. He turned around and he couldn't deal with the torture anymore. And, and instead, of, instead he, he said, okay, fine, fine, that's fine. Well, his penance was to light the fire which would burn the Bibles that he had been distributing even. He was released. He returned to Cambridge. He became a recluse all to himself. He was in a deep depression, so much so that a number of people kept an eye on him. They were fearful he might kill himself. He was so depressed, so discouraged because he had turned his back on not only William Tyndale, but he had turned his back, more importantly, on the cause of Christ in his mind. His friends, again, were on constant vigil, worried about his health, his future. But after a while, he returned to preaching. He just couldn't keep quiet. He just couldn't shut his mouth anymore. And he began to distribute Bibles all over again. And again, he was arrested. He was brought before the Bishop of London, and he was threatened with, a, with the stake and with flames and with his life if he would not recant. He's been through that before, remember? He refused, and he was immediately condemned to death. The night before his scheduled execution, he was permitted to meet with all of his friends and spend one last night of fellowship and prayer. History tells us that he was no longer fearful of his life. Only love for Christ and resolve to be faithful unto death is all that was recognized. 
He spoke these words of consolation to those who gathered in the room with him. He said, quote, Though the fire should be of great heat to my body, yet the comfort of God's Spirit should cool it to my everlasting refreshing. Isn't that amazing? He held his hand in the flame of a candle to the amazement of those that were in the room. He, he never flinched. He appeared to, be, appeared to be painless to him. And he made this statement. He said, Oh, I feel by experience and have known it long by philosophy that fire by God's ordinance is naturally hot. But yet I am persuaded by God's holy word and by the experience of some spoken of in the same. And in the fire they felt no consumption. And I constantly believe, however, that the stubble of this my body shall be wasted by it. Yet my soul and spirit shall be purged thereby. A pain for the time whereon notwithstanding followeth joy unspeakable. Imagine. He then quoted Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 3. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee and called thee by thy name. Thou art mine own. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. The next morning he was brought to the Lollard's Pit in Norwich in eastern England to be burned to death. And while standing with his back to the stake, prepared for his execution, he clutched Tyndale's obedience to a Christian man to his bosom as the bishop's henchman prepared the wood for his burning and fastened him to the stake with chains. He smiled and he said, I have had many storms in this world, but now my vessel will soon be on shore in heaven. They tell us historically again that he stood unmoved in the flames, crying out, Jesus, I believe. Jesus, I believe. These were the last words he was heard to utter. Real faith produces a love that constrains. This man may have faltered and failed. He may have even recanted his faith at one point to save his own life. But he could not get away from his real faith. What kind of faith do you have today? What kind of faith? Again, as I said before, real faith can move mountains. Only real faith can move mountains. Only real faith can move God. And only real faith can move men toward God. Anything else can prove to be the most dreadful and destructive force of nature. One of the saddest statements, I read this recently, one of the saddest statements that one could hear was made by a former leader of the nation of India, by by Mahatma Gandhi. There's nearly one billion Indian people within the borders of that vast continent. And and let's face it, an overwhelming majority of them practice the satanic, hopeless religion of Hinduism. One billion Indian people are constantly on the brink of starvation because, because of a religion that teaches reincarnation. That you die and you come back. Well, there are nearly as many cows in India as there are people. But no one eats steak because that cow could be an ancestor. Or departed loved one. 
Instead, that cow is worshipped. It's not a side of beef as God intended, but it's now an object of worship. One billion precious Indian souls will die and more than likely end up in the devil's hell because they followed the religion of Gandhi. Gandhi made this statement shortly before his death. He said, I would have become a Christian had it not been for Christians. I would have become a Christian had it not been for Christians. See, had Gandhi been converted to Jesus Christ, it is likely that one billion people would have followed. The continent of India would have likely been reached for Jesus Christ almost effortlessly. The Spirit of God would have moved. His testimony would have entrenched itself in the hearts and lives of those people. And souls would have been saved. Hand over fist. Revival would have likely broke out. Could have been India sending missionaries to the United States today had Gandhi become a Christian. See, the problem in Gandhi's mind and heart was not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It wasn't the, the, it wasn't the fact that there was a hell. It wasn't the fact that the word of God was too difficult. It had nothing to do with that. The grace of God, the love of God, the forgiveness of God, heaven, hell, eternity. None of those doctrines are what he says causes him not to believe or be part of the Christian family, the family of God. No. Christians. I would have become a Christian had it not been for Christians. Real faith is the only thing that moves mountains. Real faith is the only thing that will move God. And real faith is the only thing that will move men and women to the kingdom of God. Today, you and I need a real faith. It begins at the cross of Calvary in salvation. Believing that Christ alone died for my sin, that He alone can pay for my sin, and receiving and accepting Him as my Lord, my Savior, committing my sin into His hands, receiving His salvation into my life. And then it continues by giving ourselves to Christ, surrendering, submitting, yielding ourselves wholeheartedly, believing with all our heart His truths, His word, His promises. Real faith that exhibits these qualities, rejoicing that convicts, entity that, an entity that controls us, an ap- appreciation that compels us, and a love that constrains us. These elements will be visible in our real faith. May God help us to have real faith today. Father, we come to you. We thank you, Father, for everything you do for us.